This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Leah Greenberg. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Andrea Dara Cooper about her book, Gendering Modern Jewish Thought, which came out in November of 2021 with Indiana University Press in the series, New Jewish Philosophy and Thought. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So Andrea Cooper is associate professor and Leonard and Toby Kaplan scholar in modern Jewish thought and culture in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, which is also my alma mater, I'm very proud to say. Um, and there she teaches a range of courses on religion and culture, the history of Judaism, gender and philosophy. Her scholarship focuses on Jewish thought and cultural studies, emphasizing connections between the state of religion and critical theoretical approaches. She received her PhD from New York University's Skirball Department of Hebrew and Judaic Studies and her combined honors BA from the University of King's College in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And she's originally from Toronto, Canada. So before we get into our book today, uh, Gendering Modern Jewish Thought, I wanted to just give a brief overview. The book is about, uh, it offers a feminist critique of the fraternal models found in 20th century Jewish thought, where the key figures are dominated by men, and also the concepts on social relationships within their philosophy were built on patriarchal models. And before we get into the book further, I wanted to um, move back and talk a bit more broadly about your research and what brought you to the field itself. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about yourself, what brought you to the field, and perhaps what sparked your interest in this project in particular. Great. Well, um, I want to start off by thanking you so much. Um, and uh, it's just a real pleasure to discuss this with you. Um, we uh, had a seminar together on women, gender, and Judaism at UNC a couple years ago. Um, and 
I've, you know, really enjoyed reading your work on gender and sexuality in German and Yiddish literature. So I, you know, I, I appreciate your engagement with my work as well. And um, yeah, it's been kind of fun revisiting s- some of these themes. Um, well, thank you for reading yeah. my, I think you read my introduction to my dissertation and it's uh, nascent stages. So I yeah, appreciate that. Right. And also inspired me <laughs> with the introduction that became the introduction to this book. So <laughs> Yeah, it's been it's been great to be in conversation with you. Um, yeah, so some of uh, my background, um, I did my uh, BA. Uh, it was a combined uh, honors BA in literature and contemporary studies um, at the University of King's College. Um, that was a, it's a liberal arts uh, university in um, Nova Scotia, and I think the equivalent in terms of discipline would be comparative literature. Um, so literature was really my first disciplinary love, um, you could say. Um, and uh, what kind of literature were you interested yeah. in, particular? I, I mean, I, I, I guess it was it, it was a range. I mean, I, I I definitely had some interest actually in in Renaissance literature, surprisingly. Um, but I, I think I was mostly drawn to contemporary theory, to relationships between philosophy and literature. Um, And I think what really drew me in was the possibilities of um, doing true interdisciplinary work, you know, not not having to necessarily... um, silo off certain certain areas. So I think that that's what appealed to me about the kind of complet model that that I had my background in. Um, and then and then that in turn drew me actually to religious studies and Jewish studies in grad school were the possibilities of, you know, that kind of natural interdisciplinary conversation happening in those kinds of fields. Um, yeah, so I was actually introduced to the thought of Emmanuel Levinas in an um, undergraduate literature and theory course, um, and that was taught by um, my professor, Dorota Gloaka, so I want to give her a shout out. Um, she teaches classes in literature, theory, philosophy, um, uh, Holocaust studies, and gender studies. And I was really immediately drawn to Levinas's thought. Um, for a number of reasons. Um, I really appreciated his turn to Jewish sources, both biblical and rabbinic. Um, It it struck me as kind of a nice, um, you know, a a nice way to complement some of the other sources I was reading that uh, relied much more on, you know, Greek and and Christian sources, for example. Um, also his style really drew me in. I found his, his writing style entrancing. I didn't quite understand it. I found it poetic, but I also found it captivating. Um, so, so I was really drawn in, but I was also kind of taken aback by some of his language. So it was that dynamic that really, uh, you know, sparked my interest. Um, and then the, the actual spark for this project was in grad school when I read Rosenzweig's uh, Star of Redemption that we'll talk more about um, in a directed reading course with my doctoral advisor, Elliot Wolfson. And this is in the Department of Hebrew and Judaic Studies at NYU. Um, so I found Rosenzweig's language strange and captivating 
and, you know, generative and off-putting all at once. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I, I found these thinkers original and challenging. And, you know, that's part of why I was first pulled to these works as a reader and why I continue to be invested, you know, you could say in both their possibilities and um, potential limitations. Mm. And it's often the texts that rub you the wrong way that are the ones that you want to work on harder. Yeah, that, that's really true. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think uh, you just mentioned Rosenzweig. Um, and and maybe this is a good transition then to talk about uh, the first part of your book. Um, so can you tell us a bit more about this key text? And I don't want to say seminal, but um, that's how yeah. one would often oh, refer so, to it. I am <laughs> so another... glad you said that. <laughs> I think it was also in your seminar that we, we that I finally, I, this is what I appreciate about your work, that it makes us pause and to, to not use these words. Um, yeah. But about his key text and his most well-known text, um, uh, The Star of Redemption. So so what is its, its significance, if you could summarize for the readers, what his key intervention was, uh, and then what you do with that text in your work in the first um, chapter? Yeah, so um, so thank you for the, the language shout-out, too. I think, you know... I, Part of what I'm trying to do in this book is call our attention to how language and metaphor and you know tropes are are mobilized in philosophical arguments, um, and the very real implications to you know that kind of language and figuration. Um, and so, so yeah. So to start off, um, so the Star of Redemption is a weird, compelling book. Um, It kind of defies genres by design. It's part philosophy, part theology. And if you take a class in modern Jewish thought, you're probably going to read a selection of it. You're probably going to hear about it. You might read a selection of Rosenzweig's other writing that is, you know, more easy to tackle because the star is famously or infamously very dense. Um, So the author, uh, Franz Rosenzweig, lived in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and he's really one of the most lauded figures in the field that we call modern Jewish thought. His voice is given prominent authority. So The Star of Redemption is considered his major early work, written in 1918 to 1919 and published in 1921, so actually published 100 years before my book came out, which is kind of cool. Oh, wow. And yeah. yeah, I mean, that's just randomly coincidental. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he, um, he is relating God, world, and the human to the theological concepts of creation, revelation, and redemption in his book. Um, he viewed this book as a philosophical system. He also called it a great world poem. Um, he is trying to give an account of a system of philosophy of the all, you know, A-L-L, so like the the everything, the totality, Mm -hmm. how the human fits into that all, and really the central roles of Judaism and Christianity in the structure of the world. Um, And there's some cool backstory to the writing of the book. It was composed on postcards sent home during the end of his military service in World War I. Um, So... uh, also, I'll say, if you're looking for a helpful discussion, um, I recommend uh, Mara Benjamin's first book, Rosenzweig's Bible. Um, her mm-hmm. first chapter, I think, is a really helpful um, discussion of the book. 
Thank you. That'll be helpful uh, for our listeners. And I also did really enjoy reading. Uh, you had introduced me to Merit Benjamin's work as well. Yeah. Oh, right. That's um, true. Yes, we read yeah. we read her book, The Obligated Self. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so next, I would be interested in hearing more about the sort of gender hierarchy that's found in this text. Um, what is the role of the woman's body for Rosenzweig? What is the role of the feminine? Yeah, thank you. Um, so uh, more, more broadly, um, you know, we can think about how... Uh, how gender operates in Rosenzweig's thought, how it's been understood to operate, and you know how it's kind of how that role has has kind of been siloed in terms of the scholarship. Um, okay, so just to to take a step back um, for a moment, um, you mentioned in introducing the book um, how uh, these twentieth century thinkers and and really the canon of Jewish thought well prior to the 20th century, um, is made up of male thinkers and male voices. So I'm, I'm trying to think about what are the implications to that conversation. And uh, we're going to get a little bit into the philosophical weeds here when we start to think about how gender is organized in Rosenzweig's work. So I'm going to ask your uh, readers to kind of bear with me, or listeners rather, to, to bear with me um, for for a moment um, to, to start with a bit of background. So this is this is mainly what the first chapter of my book is thinking about. Um, Rosenzweig is really thinking about structure when he's writing his book, The Star of Redemption. And at the heart of his book, um, so kind of, you know, in the in the middle of the book and also really at we might call the the beating heart of the book is this section of the book on revelation. And there's been a lot of great scholarship done on this. Um, and in this section, he gives a really evocative reading of the biblical book of the Song of Songs from the Hebrew Bible. And he sees these a lot of these themes as central to his uh, philosophical project. So listeners might be familiar with the Song of Songs. It has no explicit religious content. It has a lot of overtly sensual verses. Um, it's a really sexy book, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so it has traditionally, unsurprisingly, been interpreted in a way that um, actually uh, looks past that sexy content and interprets it as an allegory, either for the relationship between God and God's people or God and the human soul, right? Um, and in many interpretations, um, the female voice in the Song of Songs is elided. So in the song itself, you have a female voice, you, you know, you have a, a male voice. Um, so the song is often read instead as a dialogue between the male soul who is feminized and the masculine divine. And Rosenzweig's reading is really innovative, but he nevertheless reflects this hermeneutic tradition, this tradition of interpretation, by really ultimately effacing gender difference. So I'm thinking about, and I'm arguing that he takes this text 
that celebrates difference and makes it about a longing for sameness Mm -hmm. in service of this kind of unifying fraternal community. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's that's, uh, a bit of background. Um, What I am uh, arguing here in this chapter is that Rosenzweig focuses on this strange fraternal metaphor in the Song of Songs, um, where the lovers long to become like siblings. And he is really kind of preoccupied with that relationship. Um, And he, uh, you know, what the arguments that he makes about the goals of the lovers to become like siblings, to have their differences uh, smoothed away, um, is a move that I argue has implications. It has normative implications, exegetical and philosophical implications. So my intervention here is to argue that what Rosenzweig does with gender here is important not just to this key section of the book, but to the overall implications of what the book is trying to do. Mm -hmm. And I think this offers a more complete understanding of the whole work, not only for this central section. So previously, analyses of gender of this section have kind of read it more or less in isolation. And the issue of, of what it means to move from difference to sameness has been obscured. So to kind of be more specific of of what I'm trying to do here, um, I am really informed by critical feminist and intersectional analysis. And I argue that this idea of gender that Rosenzweig has um, and this idea of the Jewish community as a blood community actually supports a patriarchal genealogy. Mm -hmm. Um, and this blood community is gendered, it's racialized, potentially, um, and furthermore, this genealogy relies on the regulation of Jewish women's bodies to produce Jewish children in the service of continuity. And this uh, brings me to, I think it's toward the end of the chapter, you discuss the Kabbalistic influence as well. I think the your your wording was that he appropriates maternity as a distinctly masculine and virile activity. Could you tell us a bit more about that that move? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, you know, there I'm I'm thinking about how he both uh, takes up, you know, draws upon, and is influenced by, but also you know, is, is trying to move away from um, uh, the, you know, Kabbalistic model of the erotic relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and here I'm thinking about, um, you know, more specifically, um, you know, what are the consequences of appropriating the, you know, the maternal model? Um, so, uh he, you know, he thinks about, he, he does not explicitly embo- um, try to reflect a mystical model, but he, 
his his model nevertheless betrays uh, a mystical dimension in his thought. Um, and uh, it's this idea of gender differentiation becoming neutralized. So here I'm influenced by my advisor, Elliot Wilson's explanation of uh, foundational motif in Kabbalistic literature, where um, there's this kind of transmutation. Um, everyone is united in brotherliness and everybody's only equal insofar as they're ultimately masculine. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, all of these distinctions are ultimately absorbed um, and effaced. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, this, this also has consequences um, to uh, how we can think about a model of difference that is ultimately, um, dissolved. Yeah, and I think that um, you really lay out beautifully one of the key themes, which is this false universal of of mm-hmm. the fraternal, of the brotherly. Um, and so that we have a chance to, to get to all of your um, wonderful chapters, I want to now talk about um, Levinas and how he was invested in this act of, of male procreation and sort of a masculine genealogy and, and once again sort of facing the female role. Uh, can you tell yeah. us a bit more then about, um, about what you explore in chapter two, which is um, entitled Eros, Bodies, and Beyond? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, here I'm thinking a lot about the role of erotic love in Levinas's earlier work. Um, later on in the book, I think about his model of maternity, um, which some see as, you know, could be seen as a corrective to his earlier model. Um, so here I'm thinking about uh, the priority that Levinas gives to what he calls fecundity, to procreation, Um, And I'm offering a critique of his gender economy um, in which I see the reproductive female body as having this kind of absent presence. Um, And that's why in this chapter, I'm also thinking about Levinas' influence by Plato and how he's drawing on and diverging from um, Plato's erotic and reproductive frameworks. So throughout the book, I'm really thinking about these modern thinkers' earlier philosophical interlocutors and how those influences can shed light on central questions of embodiment, gender, and ethics. Um, And, you know, here we see that, um, uh, you know, there's there's a broader argument to be made by how, uh, well, first of all, how Levinas... um, uses the feminine and the female body as a bridge to father-son eternity. So um, as this kind of um, bridge stopping point um, that that allows for um, a, a model of temporality focused on, you know, the father and the son. But in terms of a broader argument, I, I, I'm making the point that any philosophical system or ethical framework that privileges reproduction as the end to, um, you know, as the end to an erotic model um, is exclusionary. It's limiting Mm. and it's potentially damaging to non-reproductive individuals. Um, So, you know, there, when these texts uh, suggest that eternity happens through bodily procreation, 
um, leading to a distinctly paternal generativity of fathers and sons, leading to a fraternal community, um, there are real world implications. Mm -hmm. And so... And then later on in the book, I think about what are the implications to this universal fraternity. And I think that gives us a perfect transition then. So what are some of the implications of this (laughs) notion of universal fraternity? And um, Hannah Arendt also makes makes an appearance as well um, in your third chapter. So what is the... You know what? How how do you approach their their sort of um, attitudes towards um, brotherhood and the again false universal of brotherhood? I love how you put that the false universal of brotherhood. I I, I really like that. That's this is why it's so fun to kind of be in in conversation with you about this. I get to think about my work in in a different light. Um, so thank you. <laughs> um. So uh, yeah. So I uh. One of the epigraphs to my book is by um, the feminist political theorist Carol Pateman, who says that um, most people don't want to think about how the ideal of fraternity means what it says, right? How Mm -hmm. it's actually a brotherhood of men, which is exclusionary. Um, And when we examine these philosophical descriptions, we reveal how this language is anything but innocuous, anything but universal, as, as you put it. We can think about the work these gendered metaphors do, both in terms of their exclusionary logic and the material consequences to that logic. Um, so, you know, brotherhood suggests a neutrality of gender. Okay, that sounds really cool, but actually that masks a unifying compulsory masculinity, um, which we saw, you know, that that's part of how I'm informed by the Kabbalistic framework in the earlier chapters. Okay, so uh, I'm thinking about how this schema of fraternity in modern Jewish thought implicitly values erasing sexual difference in favor of a model of homogeneous masculinity. And these models announce that only some subjects can participate in these idealized forms. Um, Only subjects that, um, you know, are are actually capable of performing uh, fraternity, performing masculinity. Um, And um, in a, in a recent book by the um, German studies scholar Stephanie Engelstein, um, she writes that fraternity cannot serve as a symbol of inclusive politics when it blatantly excludes half the population, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about how this model pervades um, the move from the dyadic relationship to the communal sphere in ethical monotheism and modern Jewish thought more broadly. I'm thinking about how the use of kinship terminology is never neutral, um, but based on exclusion. Um, And then when I'm trying to think of some alternatives, um, uh, I turn to both um, Jacques Derrida's uh, investigation of the politics of friendship and, as you mentioned, Hannah Arendt's critique of brotherhood. Um, And I bring Arendt and Derrida into conversation to kind of pry open the unifying concept of brotherhood. Um, 
Do you want me to, to pause there or should I go on about a rent? This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. No, I'd be very interested to hear, to hear about that and also about, uh, for example, Rosenzweig's critique of um, Nathan the, the, or Nathan the Wise. Oh, yeah. um, since we're also going to be talking about our sort of intervention with the theme of friendship, um, because I think that also brings some of the themes of um, love, friendship, siblinghood uh, into, into play as well. So, yes, please yeah. do continue. And this is also why it's great to be in conversation with you as a German studies scholar, because mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm also, so I also welcome you to, to interject at any point. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, um, Arendt's critique of brotherhood takes into account its classical exclusion of Jewish politics. And she draws from the leitmotif of friendship in Lessing's play, Nathan the Wise. I'll use the English for, you know, the, um, yeah. the English <laughs> translation. Title. Yeah. So for Arendt, brotherhood exists only in dark times between persecuted peoples. Um, and as such, it cannot be political. Um, it is based upon compassion. It is based upon this shared experience. Um, but um, it is actually friendship for Arendt that can be the basis of the political realm um, because friendship is shared among citizens. So she highlights in the example of Lessing's play the limitations with an aim for shared brotherhood. So we don't, you know, we our, our listeners don't have to be familiar with the particular play necessarily. The, 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 the themes that we're drawing from this are thinking about... Um, uh, brotherhood as shared between those who resemble one another and friendship between those who don't necessarily resemble one another, right? So for mm-hmm. Arendt, brotherhood has a closeness that erases distinctions, but actually distinctions and differences should be preserved. So in her view, friendship allows for discourse and difference, but brotherliness is premised on sameness. Um, And what I also find really useful with Arendt is that she draws attention to uh, what we might think of as the unmarked post-Christian nature of so much contemporary philosophical discourse on the brotherhood Mm -hmm. of man. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, and you were were asking about, do you want to jump in here with your own thoughts or you, or you were also asking about Rosenzweig's reading, which we could also <laughs> mention. Yeah, I thought that was, that was interesting to, to see Rosenzweig's reaction as well, because one, one very, um, well, 
a well-known and discussed interpretation of the ending of Nathan the Wise when we discover that two of the main characters are in fact um, siblings and cannot be romantically <laughs> involved. And we're also, yeah. also left with the main character, Nathan, who is this sort of paragon of wisdom and virtue. But on the other hand, he's sort of left symbolically sterile and he's the Jewish representative of the characters in the play. So I think that that also is... Um, very thematically powerful for the, for the themes that you're dealing with in, in your work. Yeah. So, um, so part of the, and we'll, we'll talk about this later. Part of my broader argument about what's at stake in this research is thinking about, you know, the implications for political, you know, and communal relationships and how we understand, how we understand them. So, Rosenzweig's critique of the play is that he finds the conclusion not Jewish. He says the final scene is flat. And mm-hmm. he said he criticizes how there are no children at the end. So, you know, mm-hmm. I'm really struck by his preference for reproduction as not just a philosophical end, but a narrative end. That's consistent mm-hmm. with the framework in the star. Um, and he actually calls the sibling bond in Lessing's play fish blooded, which is just, mm-hmm. just a great um, image. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so there's, you know, on the one hand, we have like um, this example of the brother sister relationship. You know, it, it's not it's not potentially incestuous here. It it becomes kind of sterilized. Um, but for, for Rosenzweig, he is really preoccupied, you know, with how this story doesn't end the way he would like. It's not a Jewish ending because it's not a procreative ending. Mm. And my argument is that that kind of teleological approach has implications for the roles of women in these frameworks for the roles of non-normative individuals um, and, and how we conceive of who, you know, who belongs. Mm-hmm. Well, on the theme of siblings and on the theme of Rosenzweig's <laughs> reception, I thought that would also be a good transition into your fourth chapter, which is where you bring into conversation both Rosenzweig's philosophical work and his own biography, and in particular, his correspondence with his lover who could not be. Um, so I, I was interested, one, in knowing about sort of what are the what were the challenges in interweaving biographical and philosophical research? Um, and uh, what were the payoffs? And another is to also continue on the theme that we were discussing, sort of wh- what was Rosenzweig's uh, investment um, in the issue of the sister-wife motif, which we haven't really discussed explicitly yet, but which has already come up uh, earlier in the book. Yeah, so those are those are excellent questions. Um and I, when, when you were just talking about that, and you don't have to answer this now, but I am curious about how you have dealt with the biographies of writers that you study. Um, so I, I am, if if you're if you're interested in, in in thinking about that further, I'd be I'd be really you know curious about that because I well indeed, yeah I, it's, it's yeah. polarizing. I mean, not to yeah. uh, to read into a text, um, of course. I'm someone who reads in a very historically informed way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that literature is not to be necessarily be read in a vacuum, of course. And I'm someone who's also very invested in um, historical research. But on the other hand, um, 
there are also ways to read text imminently. And so this is a much broader, broader debate on, on um, sure. literary scholarship. But, but of yeah. course, I think that um, it's enriched your reading. So I'm very interested in, yeah. in what you found to be some of the potential pitfalls or maybe what was some critique that you received, because I know that this, yeah. if, if this is a project you've been, been working on also from your time at NYU, that you probably had people with different, different uh, viewpoints on how to approach this. Yeah, I actually gave a, a an earlier version of this as a paper when I was a grad student, and I definitely got pushback. You know, why mm. are you relying on this thinker's biography? Um, why are you focusing almost that almost that it was kind of you know inappropriate? And I, I internalized that pushback, and then I thought, okay, why does my argument still stand? Why 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 is this relevant? Um, so so to take a step back. Um, in this chapter, I'm thinking about the biographical circumstances surrounding Rosenzweig's writing of the star. And I argue that the text of his work and its production history, if we can call it that, mutually illuminate each other when it comes to the troubling gender dynamics of the text. Um, and that this figure of the sister wife is subsumed in both philosophy and in life. Um, I'm, I'm also, you know, drawing on the, you know, the fact that part of the reason Rosenzweig is, is famous and, and well-known is that he has this really compelling biography. Um, okay. So, uh, in this chapter, I'm thinking about how Rosenzweig is preoccupied with the brother-sister relationship in his philosophical work and in his life and in his letters, um, and, uh, this kind of intertextual reading, um, I think is particularly relevant because he wrote this central section of the star, um, via letters to, um, his lover, um, uh, Margaret Ro rosenstock Husi, um, who he actually called his sister bride. This is a term list lifted from the Song of Songs. <laughs> um, and these letters and, you know, what other biographical traces reveal about his relationships with her and her husband, Eugen, who was um, a friend and philosophical influence to him, and Rosenzweig's own wife, Edith, raise complex questions for us, for us about the ethical tensions that arise from attempts to resolve seemingly competing claims of blood ties and erotic desire. Um, and I, you know, I acknowledge there are, there are certainly good reasons to avoid reducing philosophical texts to philosophers' lives. But I think there are also risks to that approach. If we stay too safely removed from the biographical sphere, then we might reify the patriarchal structures that too often allow the work of philosophy to be done, that in the case of Rosenzweig actually allowed the philosophy to be written. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, biographical traces can lead us to a deeper engagement with works that will continue to be foundational. Um, they can also help us see the effects of textually unmarked positionality. So the, you know, for example, maybe the, the, the masculinity of certain uh, thinkers. Mm -hmm. um, here I'm also, you know, influenced by um, 
uh, Derrida's argument that um, we shouldn't just consider the philosopher's biography as no more than a corpus of empirical accidents. Um, and there he's, you know, playing on this idea of the body um, and the philosophical mm-hmm. corpus, you know, saying that the philosopher's body has a role in the body of work. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so uh, basically to, uh, you know, to, um, to sum up, um, Rosenzweig himself was... Uh, you know, involved in what has sometimes been called a triangle, maybe a, a love triad. We might even call it a throuple um, between his best friend and his best friend's wife. I actually use the term throuple in the book, and I was like, yeah, should I? Use it? Yeah, okay, I'm going to use it. Um, <laughs> you know, and I'm using that because I'm suggesting that this dimension expands the rigidly heteronormative schema that we read in the stars section on Revelation. You know, there's a way that this dimension kind of queers in a really productive way um, the, 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 the erotic horizon of, of the philosophical work. Um, ultimately, Rosenzweig couldn't, you know, be further involved with, with this lover. Um, she was married to his best friend, but also she wasn't Jewish. Um, mm. And so when we read the biographical along with the philosophical, we allow for the possibility that he may be expressing an anxious awareness of Jewish status that is decided through matrilineal descent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this, this, again, is part of the, my, you know, broad argument about, you know, why what is at stake in this? Why, why, why does this matter to conversations we're having today? Um, when we have a system that uh, in which you know women have status as being kind of both central and absent, um, women are can be can be seen you know as objects of exchange, right? They're they're the key to the system, but they are often written out of its history. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, to, just to, to the very definition of invisible labor. Exactly. And, you know, and I mentioned, yeah. yeah, sorry, no, go ahead. No, no, I just wanted to, to add that. Sorry to interrupt. No, I'm so glad you did. And I, I'm there, you know, I'm drawing on um, Amy Hilshevitz has an article where she thinks about how, you know, so Rosenzweig tragically suffered from ALS towards the end of his life. He, in, in, mm-hmm. in laudatory biographies, it is often mentioned that he communicated his work after he became paralyzed um, by, um, by his wife, Edith, recited the alphabet until he blinked his eyes to indicate um, that she had arrived at the first letter of the word he wanted. Now, often her role is not mentioned at all. He is memorialized um, as somebody who translated the Bible with Martin Buber, even as he lost the capacity of speech. Um, and he, his later work is incredibly important, you know, that, that work in translation. But she is central to that work, not only in terms of her, you know, physical labor, in terms of her intellectual labor. Um, mm-hmm. So the mechanics of how the philosophical work is done um, is often um, omitted. So I'll, I, I'm going to pause there. <laughs> yeah, well, this, this might seem like an odd uh, turn, but I was thinking, so you've been talking about positionality, you've been talking about sort of 
moving away from the abstraction of the philosopher, because if we if we refuse to take a look at the biography and the mechanics of how that philosophy came to be, we we risk deifying or abstracting the philosopher to some sort of normative figure, which is because of the norms that exist, um, uh, normalized as male. And yeah. that made me think about the cover of your book, uh, because oh, I was thinking, yeah. hmm, I should ask, <laughs> what is the cover? Uh, to describe it, it's, um, well, two entire human figures, but they seem to be their white plaster ceramic figures. Um, I'm not exactly sure of the material. Standing up, they seem to be, they're pairless, genderless, they're sort of erased of any particular figures. And one of them is split in two. So you see from the hips down and then you see from the hips up uh, of the third figure um, into two pieces. So I was wondering if you could tell us uh, what that might be gesturing toward, if that's at all related to the point that you were just making. Um, I was looking to see if, uh, if there's an explanation to the cover image, but I wasn't able to find it. Maybe it's because I have the ebook, but... Oh yeah, you're right. It is. It isn't. That's a shame. That is a limitation of the ebook. Um, Maybe so is it on the dust jacket? The yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm so glad you brought it up. I actually. Um, the students in my modern Jewish thought seminar last semester did a really cool, you know, art historical interpretation of, of the cover, which which I loved. Um, so okay, so there's a, a number of reasons why I chose this image. Um, to start with, um, the artist is actually my sister. Oh wow! Um, <laughs> yeah, she is a figurative ceramic artist um, working out of Toronto. She's a ceramic artist and educator, uh, Jess Riva Cooper. So shout out to her. You can check out um, her work at JessRivaCooper.com. Uh, um, from a, yeah, you definitely. It's it's a fabulous website, and this is from. Uh, a, a series called The Conversation. And I gave the art department in Indiana a few different examples and they, a few different images. They, they selected this one, which I loved. Um, so there's a lot going on there. First of all, um, I wanted to move beyond, you know, the like uh, Jewish representations in 20th century. Our history is only Marc Chagall. Chagall is awesome. Chagall is great, right? But if I'm making an argument about <laughs> mobilizing um, non-male voices, then it was important to me, number one, to have um, a non-male artist. But furthermore, I'm making an argument about moving beyond the fraternity. Um, and actually, ultimately, one of the arguments I make in this book is that the sororal model, what I, um, the, the model of sorority, the model model of sisterliness can be a kind of corrective. So how meaningful for me to be able to have my sister's artwork function as the mm -hmm. cover. Um, but, but um, you know, there's, there's more to it than that. These figures are actually unglazed. Um, mm -hmm. So they are, and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of supposed to be, you know, genderless, perhaps. There's a lot of dimensions we can think about in this cover. We can think about how the, these figures are or are not racialized, you know, the role of embodiment and perhaps disability um, um, and exclusion. I mean, it really spoke to me in terms of exclusion. You have two central figures having a dialogue and then other figures who are left out of that conversation. Um, you know, and actually that's, I was always drawn into this canon of modern Jewish thought, but as a woman, I often felt like I was not the ideal reader, um, mm -hmm. like I was not represented in these works. And that was part of why I wanted to make an intervention here.
Mm. And in a sense, these these figures are sort of blank canvases in a way, um, yeah, so yeah. that one can read themselves into it. Um, so uh, thank you, because I would have never guessed uh, in terms of the <laughs> no, different interpretations you. for the cover. So I hope that everyone can can go ahead and look that up and take a look and also look at your sister's website. Yeah. Um, okay, so I want to also turn to the last chapter before the epilogue, um, before we have to wrap up, um, which is when you return to Levinas and um, thinking again about um, the embodied and about... Um, specifically the lab- the woman's labor. Um, here you talk about the ethics of maternal sacrifice. Can you tell us a bit more about, about that? What are the limitations of Levinas's ethics of maternal self-sacrifice? Thank you, yeah. Um, and also I want to say any artistic interpretations you have of the cover are not foreclosed by my, you know, interpretations of them. So um, I think anything we can draw from that is fantastic. Um, (laughs) So in his later work, I mentioned before, Levinas develops, you know, an account of embodied maternity. This may reflect a corrective to his previous focus. And I think in this model, he offers resources for imagining less patriarchal kinship frameworks. Um, even if his ethics remain within this kind of fraternal system. So, you know, I think there are helpful elements to his idea of embodied maternity. I think there are also drawbacks to his approach. Um, on the one hand, it's, it's really refreshing um, that he foregrounds the maternal relationship um, in thinking about how the ethical framework is always already embodied. Um, And um, in thinking about, you know, the dynamics of of figuring and um, exemplifying that that framework. Um, On the other hand, we have to take seriously what it means when he says that the body is not merely a metaphor in his work. if it's not only a metaphor, if it's not only figural, we have to be cautious um, because he thinks about this ethical relationship of maternity as self-sacrificial. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, <laughs> there are potential implications to that, right? How does that, you know, reinscribe a expectation, first of all, that certain bodies, um, you know, should be reproductive or um, should be maternal or that those bodies should be self-sacrificing. Um, you know, on the other hand, with, with an awareness that, um, you know, that he might be trying to gesture to other alternatives, other potential models and structures of collectivity. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm extending the critique of his gender economy here from earlier chapters um, while pointing to, um, to other models. You know, his, his model might not take us far enough, um, but it can, you know, we can expose its limitations while also making his, this approach available as we seek a new way forward. And that's something that... Um you lay out also at the in the beginning of the book, which is um, one to take seriously this idea that it's not only metaphorical, but also um, you know how we need to be careful if we're thinking about women's bodies as metaphorical vessels, um, yeah. 
So I was wondering if you could sort of give us a sense of what some of your closing ideas are um, in terms of, you know, how the experience of maternity can be a productive one to think with, but also um, what are what are some areas and uh, or what are some of the directions in which we can move forward from Levinas's model? Yeah, so this is this is a great question. And I yeah, I think this is kind of another way of considering, um, you know, how these patriarchal structures have, um, you know, have um, actually um, proliferated um, and uh, how they have um, been perpetuated. Um, so uh, in, the, in the epilogue, part of what I'm trying to do is think about how the patriarchal logics of, around these texts is situated in the context of 20th and 21st century um, Jewish concerns around what has been called, you know, the so-called continuity crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, this this idea of, you know, really the regulation of women's bodies to, perpetu- to perpetuate um, continuity. Um, so, uh, and, and here I'm, you know, I'm drawing on um, a recent article by scholars Lila Corman-Berman, Kate Rosenblatt, and Renate Stahl, you know, who argue that discussions of Jewish continuity and communal survival have historically been predicated on restrictive sexual and gender politics, um, and that this paradigm demands women's obedience to a specific familial model and actually holds women responsible for... Um, continuing uh, Jewish familial lines. Um, And, you know, this narrative really deprioritizes women's autonomy. Um, It it emphasizes this idea of fertility as the means for securing a Jewish future. So, you know, this this argument um, that these thinkers are making, the, the, the way they mobilize language, this is not neutral. This is Actually, we can see this reflected in conversations today, um, really in, in, in the past few years in, 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 in Jewish studies and religious studies more broadly, you know, thinking about um, the structures of scholarship and institutional life um, and, uh, you know, how regimes of power and modes of control um, are part of certain assumed narratives, um, you know, this, this narrative of Jewish continuity posits reproduction as an end in and of itself, but it's not a necessary approach. Um, so, you know, when we reassess these canonical works, we can address issues that stand at the center, really, of contemporary conversations. Hmm. And and this brings uh, us to the issue of, of being attentive to language once again. So I wanted to I was curious also to hear about how this has informed your teaching, which I've also been able to benefit from, how the work that you've done on this book has informed the way that you um, present texts and work with texts with your students in terms of being attentive to language, in terms of refusing to accept um, uh, norms that have become invisible to us, Um, but perhaps also how your teaching has uh, then reflected back onto your own work, how your students may have informed your work as well? I, I really love that question. Um, you know, I, I, I do think of myself 
as a as a scholar teacher um i i think it's a it's also a great question because you know it 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 demonstrates how we we take the the solitary work that we do and and bring it into the world you know so in my teaching i i try to introduce students to philosophical and ethical questions in accessible ways i'm i'm also trying to demonstrate that the questions we are asking and that a lot of the thinkers in the history of, of Jewish studies are asking animate a series of concerns um, that have real implications. So, you know, we have these somewhat lofty seeming abstract questions, but they actually have practical implications for people in the world. Um, and, you know, I, I think that this also gets to you, you, you know, you, you asked, um, I think, you know, another question about um, what, you know, people might take away from, from the book or how, you know, how t- chatting with students has, has influenced my own approaches. Um, I think some, you know, some major takeaways um, are, you know, not only women have gender, but everyone has gender. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's the fact that the, the masculine, masculinity is unmarked, precisely that, yeah. Exactly, right? You know, just like we all have bodies, um, philosophers have bodies, they have lives, they also have gender. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and it's not heretical to interrogate that. Um, in fact, it might actually be irresponsible to ignore that. You know, so I think also something in, in terms of teaching and, and my own reading and writing practices and scholarship I, I want to take away from this is that reading critically doesn't mean being overly critical. Um, I think that, that that is often a gendered thing also. You know, I, I was once told that my critique of these philosophers was too strident. Um, and I think, yeah, right. That's that's a real gender <laughs> critique, isn't it? <laughs> mm, they may as well yeah. have said shrill. No, I mean exactly. Yes, right. Like they might as well have said shrill. So reading critically can mean reading responsibly. Um, yeah. And yeah, uh, you know that um, that uh, it can mean acknowledging ourselves as reading subjects. Mm. And that's what we're seeking to do is to make more reading subjects out of our students. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, true. Okay. Well, I don't want to take up your entire um, morning, different time zones, but uh, I would be interested in knowing what you're working on next. Uh, I realize you probably have a full course load. Um, wait, or perhaps you're on sabbatical. Um, but in any case, what can we look forward to seeing from you in the near future? Yeah, thank you. Um, so... Uh, my, my interest in, you know, the ethical problems associated with kinship metaphors actually led me to my next project, which takes a bit of a different turn, um, in which I apply, uh, critical animal studies to examine post-Holocaust thought, um, post-Shoah, um, thought and literature. So, uh, this project uh, which is tentatively titled Animality After Auschwitz, really takes up my interest in 
reconfiguring tropes of kinship to include, you know, other forms of affiliation and and relationality. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm I'm continuing my my interest in you know, questions of ethical consideration, um, questions of, uh, you know, the political implications to certain types of language, in focusing on the racialized thinking that inflicts the trope of animality on certain groups, um, both of non-human animals and of certain groups of humans. Um, and um, I'm also... Um, at the beginning stages of another project, editing a collection on Jewish women thinkers um, with my colleague, religious studies scholar, um, Sarah Imhoff. Um, And she came up with this great idea for a reader to use for both scholarship and teaching that addresses some of the questions, you know, that I, that I bring up here as well, right? Like how do we make Jewish thought more inclusive? What's next for Jewish thought? Um, and how do we bring in more voices? So yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. That's, a, that's great. I'm, I'm excited to hear about both those projects and and um, wonderful that there will be more inclusive resources in terms of Jewish studies and hopefully to, to make that more accessible. Well, thank you so, so very much for joining me today. It's been um, a very, very enjoyable conversation, and I'm so glad to hear more about uh, the process of writing this text and to, to hear you speak about it and um, to also have seen it in its earlier in an earlier stage or part of it as well. So it's been an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you too. I really appreciate your your conversation and your you know thoughtful engagement with my work. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs>